0: Good morning, everyone. I'm Craig Calhoun, director of the LSE, and welcome to this conference. Our theme, Trails of the Great War, uh, doesn't make this particularly particular indication for humor, and I won't try any. The event should be an interesting one. It is an exploration not just of the war, but, as the title suggests, of the way in which the war Left trails throughout the 20th century into the present day, cast shadows on a variety of things that happened after, inaugurated a long period of dramatic social change. So it is a theme that is partly about the war, but largely about the long period since the war and how it's been changed by the events that began in 1914. I'm afraid we have lost Douglas Alexander from the program, so we have one fewer speech than planned that's already accommodated, and a slight change made in the order of sessions in the program that's been passed out to you, to deal with this. So the program announced today remains correct, so far as we know. I'm not going to make any long remarks of introduction. I'm going to shift gears um, and combine introductions to Congress Conference itself with introduction to the film that's before us. But before I do, let me thank the key organizers of the conference Richard Sennett, David Stevenson, and John Jungklausen. And they came together with the idea that in a year that was full of commemorations, there was a reason not simply to commemorate the start of the war, but to look at the impact and trails of the war. And this year of commemoration has been a year that calls our attention to different sorts of things. There have been calls to have a, a more upbeat appraisal of the war. And Gove called for a look at the war that emphasized heroism and patriotism more, that challenged the idea that it was folly, that it was the product of accident, or that it was, in many ways, something shaped by class relations that allowed enormous numbers of people on different sides to die. Others have recalled that the war was a dramatic event in the history of warfare itself, the impact on technology, the impact on strategy. It was a war fought in many ways with an extraordinarily brutal strategy that to many marked the end of a certain idea of combat. Yet things like trench warfare didn't end. As recently as about 18 years ago, Ethiopia and Eritrea were locked in trench warfare, directly reminiscent of the conflicts in World War I, and proportionally for population, comparably fatal. And when we talk about the fatalities, the numbers are huge. The percentages of the military forces that were killed are enormous, and thus on each side the French on the Germans, on the British on the Russians, on each side, fatalities were astonishing. There were, of course, large numbers of civilian fatalities as well, but in many ways, in this particular war, it's not the civilian fatalities that bloom largest in our minds. It is the decimation, in fact, much greater than decimation, in some military forces, a majority of the fighting troops who were lost in the combat that left its mark. And again, this is something that people said at the time could not happen again, obsolete, though it happened in the Iran-Iraq War. And the demographic impact, countries that lose uh, the majority of a generation of young men and are shaped for years after that is enormous. World War I also marked, in many ways, the birth of modern pacifism. Of course, the idea of pacifism is old the idea of pursuing peace, the idea of a war to end all wars, the idea that after the current war we will have a perpetual peace. It's of course, as old as Immanuel Kant and in fact, much older. But World War One marked conscientious objection and struggles over conscientious objection on a large scale. Sometimes, like desertion in war, and large numbers of soldiers were killed as deserters in the war. And it becomes a history of in part a history of a renewal and reshaping of pacifism as something that would be a feature of every war after this in the west at least in the western side that again is something that hasn't been universally accepted the idea that there could be a conscientious objection to participation in war remains something controversial it's a theme that comes forward in Grand Illusion in the film that we're going to open this with. The film is not, in a simple sense, just a pacifist story or an anti-war diatribe. But it's worth thinking of the context of the production of the film, which was released in 1938 as another world war loomed. One of the messages, I think, of thinking about the trails of World War I is to remind us to think of the two world wars as, in a sense, episodes in a common social transformation and a common conflict. We can speak of them as World War I, World War II, but in many ways, we look at nearly half a century of wrenching and extraordinarily brutal conflict, struggling over control of Central Europe, of Europe as a whole, and to some extent, the world. Wars that we are between nation-states, but also between empires. And wars that reflect a struggle over hegemony in the modern world system. The UK is clearly the hegemonic power before this long period of warfare. And by the end of it, there's a transition to American power. But a struggle between UK and Germany and their various allies that shapes this whole war is a reminder of a connection between these aren't completely discrete events nor, indeed, um, are the giddy 1920s, or a Great Depression. So 1938 was another war, but a continuation, an apparent renewal of this war And Jean Renoir makes grand illusion. Renoir is one of the great modern French filmmakers, a pioneer of cinema, and simply a a fine artist in the cinema. This is an important early film for someone who would go on to an extraordinary career in that sense. I won't speak mainly about the cinematic history that's made here, but in other senses. And urge you, as you watch the film, to look at various aspects of its story. In particular, it's noteworthy that it is not really a story of trench warfare. It's not a story of the hundreds of thousands of soldiers that each side deployed in the brutal combat that in many ways we remember from the war. It's a story of aristocrats and officers. The story where the class division most depicted is between older aristocratic officers and emerging officers who are not aristocrats, but still officers. Most of it takes place in officers' camps and reflects the power of the um, identity officer, but within that, the division between those inherited positions and others. It includes Lines like, It's war, but let us not forget our manners. That reflects a certain gentlemanly courtesy with which the German officer, uh, Ralphenstein, speaks to the French officer, Marischal, because they are, uh, sorry, because they are members of a common class that transcends nationality. At the very beginning, after de and his pilot Marshall have been shot down, Rothenstein invites them to lunch, served with all proper ceremony, as between competitors who had met on the playing fields of a sporting competition and then retired to enjoy lunch, even though one had won. At the same time, in the film, they reflect on what at another point Raffenstein describes as a futile existence. And the futile existence is not especially a reflection of the futility of war. It is the reflection of being among the last generations to be in a certain kind of elite position as aristocratic officers in a position of dominance over their countries and, indeed, the troops beneath them. What's futile is the effort to act out that role properly in a context where it is becoming socially obsolete. There are other things to watch for and observe, and I'll leave you mostly to the observations. There's the point made at one point about frontiers that are man-made, not nature, with vistas of mountains on the Swiss border before them, a theme that is not insignificant as people explore the uh, tension between the apparent naturalization of national borders and nature, which doesn't reveal them. And finally, there's the illusion that gives the film its title. The term illusion, if you watch for it, crops up repeatedly. It is possibly the war itself that is a grand illusion. Or is the illusion, in a phrase that is repeated several times early in the film, that it will be over in a few weeks. And this was an important theme. Many people were not at all clear that they were entering into a long, extraordinarily grueling, deadly struggle that would tax the very productive capacities and the sheer human numbers of each of the countries involved. There was a widespread view among many of those who entered into the combat and who indeed made the decisions at the top levels to undertake the combat that it would be quick and over in a few weeks? Or is the illusion, like various fantasies, like remembering girls at home on a crate of women's clothing, arise? Or is, in the end, the illusion that it would be possible to end the war and make it the last war? Is that the grand illusion? well. I leave it to you and throughout the day we'll have a chance to reflect not just on the film but on these various issues in different panels and to engage in discussion together about a war that changed not just the 20th century but our lives. Thank you for being here.